Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Welcome to Medicine on the Fall, where it's all about living in the solutions. Today I have a special show on because I think we, we're in a midst of a lot of things going on in our society. And if anybody's been watching over the past couple of months, there's been a real movement towards discussion about climate change and the consequences. And I think anybody who watched the UN and watched the young, young girl who came over from Sweden to give us her take on what we should all be doing, I decided I think we need to actually have an, an important conversation that takes emotion out of it and talks about science and about how climate change, if it exists at all, and if it does, how will it affect all of us without emotion being put into the forefront. So I wanted to have um, uh, an expert from the Heartland Institute come on. And the Heartland Institute, its mission is to discover and develop and promote free market solutions to social and economic problems. And I like that approach because it's about fixing a problem, not trying to get your way. And today we're going to speak with Mr. James Taylor. He's the director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center for Climate and Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute. Um, he graduated from Dartmouth College, where he studied atmospheric science, and he majored in government, and he has a JD from Syracuse University. Um, he's been an editor for Environment and Climate News. He's been a guest on m several of the national media um, stations, including CNN, PBS Frontline, ABC World News. So this is not a partisan issue. It's about telling the truth. So, Mr. Taylor, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start off. From what got you interested in climate change? Well, it's interesting. Back in the late 1980s and early 1990s, I had seen the media reports. Uh, back then, without as much uh, cable television or without the Internet, basically you're talking the three major networks and the major publications. And those media outlets were telling a story of an impending climate crisis that was going to impose dramatic negative consequences on human health and welfare. And I've always been a believer in individual freedom, and I always default uh, towards uh, protecting that freedom. And some of the uh, proposed solutions would, would be more government-centered, but for me it seemed, well, if we're, if we're destroying the planet, if we're going to put the planet in an oven, so to speak, mm -hmm. well, you have to do what you have to do to, to solve the problem. So at the time when I was in law school at Syracuse University, I was the editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, and I decided to look at the studies, the actual scientific studies and the actual scientific data because I wanted to give my fellow law students a deeper perspective than just what they were seeing on CNN or in USA Today, and I wanted to motivate them to take action to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. The thing is, when I looked at the evidence and when I read more of the studies, the more I looked into it, the more information that was available, the more it seemed pretty clear to me that, yes, people are probably causing some warming, but we're not likely at all to have the kind of uh, climate crisis uh, 
that was being uh, forecast at the time. And uh, so that's what got me motivated, the fact that I was, I was pretty upset that I had been duped mm-hmm. and uh, had taken at face value what had been claimed in the media. Yeah, that seems to be the, the state of affairs everywhere. There's a lot of people talking about various topics or they're put on TV, but they really don't have a background. I'm a doctor. So from my perspective, when they talk about health care and what should be done, and it's not a physician who's practicing, I don't want to hear what they have to say because they don't know what they're talking about. And everybody that I've ever run across, at least in terms of the people who are given platforms and media, nobody's... Nobody's read anything, and it's only what they've been told. And now you're actually someone who's done the research. What happens when you when you bring that up to somebody who who is, you know, really afraid of climate change? Do they actually take a step back and listen to what you're saying, or how how do how do you approach them? Well, it depends on their perspective and what motivates them. There are many people who truly uh, want to have uh, the best solution if there's a problem or if there's not a problem, the best policy uh, that takes that into account. Mm -hmm. There are others who, you know, oftentimes you see in polling where this breaks down sometimes among Democratic or Republican party lines. And I think the reason for that is the, the proposed solutions are the same type of large government programs that involve more taxation or cap-and-trade or whatever it may be that uh, people on the political left generally are not too concerned about, whereas people on the right are a little more wary of. And so that can be a factor, too, whether other people are, are looking at this as, uh, you know, on its own merits or something that's, well, you know, this is just another, another political issue. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's really, really interesting to me is when you bring up you know the medical issues from your background, um, it, it's amazing. Uh, one of the stats that I like to present, and one of the studies that is just so powerful, uh, the Medical Journal of the Lancet, which you're familiar with, and one of the most prestigious peer-reviewed medical journals in the world. Just a few years ago, uh, the Lancet published a study in which scientists viewed uh, human mortality. Uh, excess human mortality from suboptimal temperatures. So in lay terms, it means people who die because temperatures uh, are not ideal. And what they found is that 7% of all deaths globally uh, are traced to suboptimal or less than ideal temperatures. But the surprising thing here was that by a 20 to 1 margin, those people that died because temperatures were not ideal, by 20 to 1 margin, they were dying because of cold temperatures rather than hot or warm temperatures. Mm-hmm. And so if we have uh, the modest warming, if it continues like we have, this would benefit human health and welfare and reduce human deaths globally because the persistent cold temperatures that were linked to those deaths will be less frequent. Well, you know, that's, an, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's certainly easier, I think, to, to keep, to try to get cool than it is to try to stay warm when you have no means of 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 creating, you know, any kind of heat. But I have a question about the bigger picture. It seems that the people who are proponents, yes, government is the answer, but it's always about control and control about how, what you do, not eating meat, getting rid of cows, stopping airplane travel. I mean, these don't seem like viable solutions, but they do seem like solutions that would control behavior. Is that something that you're seeing? 
Oh, certainly. And what is most disconcerting is that in Europe, where they have uh, many of these uh, restrictions that are being proposed here in the United States on carbon dioxide emissions, in other nations where you have larger government anyway, and again, you have the international agreements where we are being chastised uh, for failing to sign on to the Paris Accord, etc. In those nations, you see carbon dioxide emissions rising, and here in the United States, you see them falling. In the United States, for example, since the turn of the century, our carbon dioxide emissions are down 14%, and that is the largest decrease in the world by any country. Mm-hmm. And yet, globally, emissions are up by more than 50%. So what you have is you have corrupt governments that uh, that say the right words to please the environmental activists and to please the globalists who want to have United Nations control and oversight of these programs, and yet uh, through the the, uh, the mechanisms of government, uh, you don't see any real change. But here in the United States, through market forces and, and allowing uh, our economy to work, to allow, for example, affordable natural gas to gain market share uh, in the energy uh, market, what you see is that uh, emissions are declining, and it, it just goes to show that. You don't need a large international bureaucracy to solve these problems if there really is a problem. I don't believe that global warming is a crisis. But even if it were, uh, the rest of the world should be beating a path to the door of the United States and saying, how are you guys doing it? Because we're having a hard time doing this. Well, I think you're absolutely right on that one. Let's take our first break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Mr. James Taylor. He's the director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center for Climate and Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute. And before the break, you said something that was really very telling. The United States is doing a great job from what you just described at lowering our carbon emissions. But there are countries, and China sticks out really kind of uh, as like a sore thumb to me as one that gets a pass, even though... It's like they're building coal power plants. They're doing things that are going in the opposite direction. Why is it that nobody seems to ride them like they're riding the United States? I think much of it is the same type of self-loathing that we see in other issues here in the United States where uh, we're made out to be the bad guys even when uh, from – uh, any reasonable perspective, what we're doing our best to uh, to have moral effective policies. Now, in China, for example, uh, China by itself is responsible for between two-thirds and three-fourths of the entire emissions growth in the world wow. during this century. That's one country doing all that. And the funny thing is you have some of these environmental activists which have praised China mm-hmm. because they make statements <laughs> saying that they support the Paris Agreement. Well, of course they do, because the Paris Agreement requires nothing out of China. Under the Paris Agreement, China pledges that sometime around the year 2030 is when they expect that their annual increase in their carbon dioxide emissions might plateau. In other words, and, and, there's no, and, and they're not held to that as a deadline or, or anything else. So basically they say, well, our economy is going to keep emitting more and more carbon dioxide. We think in a little over a decade it might level out. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, we're not going to be held to it. And the Paris Agreement 
calls for $100 billion every year in wealth transfers from the Western democracies to developing nations like China. Wow. So oftentimes when we're told that the rest of the world is all united and the United States is an outlier, well, yeah, because the rest of the world is being promised part of a $100 billion kitty uh, for which they have to do nothing. The carbon dioxide restrictions are almost entirely imposed upon the Western democracies. Uh, so, yeah, China gets a free pass. Not only do they get a free pass, but they get handouts from Western nations for doing nothing. So, of course, they're on board with the Paris Agreement, and, of course, their emissions keep rising. Fortunately, again, because uh, global warming is not an impending crisis, uh, their rising emissions aren't causing uh, harm. But, nevertheless, if you believe it's causing harm, then uh, you're barking up the wrong tree if you're trying to blame the United States uh, for global warming. It's very schizophrenic if China is the second largest economy moving towards the first, but it's still a sorry, developmental country. Which one is it? Who wrote this thing? Because it can be anybody in the United <laughs> States that did it. Right. And as you mentioned, their economy is smaller than ours, significantly smaller than ours. And yet they emit twice as much carbon dioxide as we do. And yet all of the uh, international criticism is directed at the United States. All the criticism from environmental activist groups globally and here in the United States is directed at the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, really, they're barking up the wrong tree. Well, you know, I remember growing up that it wasn't global, it wasn't climate change. First, it was global cooling, I think. Then it was global warming, because none of those came true. And then it became climate change, which is, what does that even mean? Every day is a change, right? (laughs) I mean, it's 92 one day, it's 88, and I mean, that's climate change, isn't it? What climate change means is the global warming alarmists need to save face when it snows every time Al Gore gets the public <laughs> talk about global warming. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so our climate has always been changing. And, in fact, for most of the period of human civilization, temperatures have been significantly warmer than today. Mm-hmm. Temperatures have risen and fallen many times, but... Uh, it's only during the past uh, several hundred years that temperatures have been cool. The Earth entered the Little Ice Age about the year 12, 1300, which was the coldest period of the past 10,000 years. And so when we hear about the warmest, the hottest years on record, it's because people are, uh, the alarmists are defining, quote, the record as merely the past hundred years, when we are finally and thankfully emerging from the Little Ice Age. Uh, the normal, quote-unquote, normal temperature of the Earth uh, throughout human civilization has been significantly warmer than today. You know, you wonder, it's kind of a chicken and egg scenario to a degree. You know, I remember growing again, growing up, we had snow. I live in New York. We had snow, but we had 20 inches on some points. Now it seems like the, the news media, the weather reporters just highlight and hype like, okay, it's wintertime, you're supposed to have, or it's summertime, it's 90 degrees, that's not a big deal. So are we seeing more of a propaganda push? You know, if you keep saying it over and over again how horrible it is, people start to believe it? Or, I mean, I agree with you, I think statistics are such that you can pick any number, or any parameter to make it say what you want it to say. And I've actually seen some studies that said if you go out a longer period of time it, there really isn't a change or it's actually gone down it's not going up and who right how can we right. educate the population about this 
Well, uh, before we get to the education component, you make a, a great point about uh, how the media tried to mislead people about symptoms of climate change. For example, earlier this year, uh, some folks at the Weather Channel who are making a series in which they're uh, asserting there's a climate crisis, uh, they asked me to join them driving through southern Georgia, uh, where Hurricane Michael had hit last year. And yes, and Hurricane Michael was a powerful uh, hurricane that did a tremendous amount of damage. And after driving me around and showing me the damage, they said, do you still not believe in climate change? <laughs> well, of course I believe in climate change. Climate's always changed. But getting to your question, I think what you intended to ask, do you not believe in the climate crisis? The, what they try to mislead people to believe is that any time there's a hurricane, that is a sign of human-caused global warming and right. it's a crisis, as if hurricanes never existed 100 years ago. <laughs> Have they not heard of some of the massive... Uh, incredibly destructive hurricanes, the Labor Day hurricane in the 30s in, in the Florida Keys, uh, the Galveston hurricane, I believe it was 1901, there were Category 5 hurricanes that did tremendous damage. And they're trying to make people believe that if there's anything other than climate and weather utopia, mm -hmm. it's because of global warming. And it's funny because I recall uh, my, my favorite song at the time when I was a young boy, this was in the early 1970s, there's a song called It Never Rains in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And now when you have wildfires that are caused by failed electrical equipment from PG&E, they try to say that that's proof of global warming as if California never suffered uh, dry conditions before. California, much of Southern California, most of Southern California is inherently dry. But this is what they try to do. It's a head fake mm -hmm. where they make people believe that anything happens is caused by global warming. As far as how do you educate people, it's very difficult because, especially just in the past few years, we see a much more concerted effort. There's always been an effort to marginalize climate skeptics. I call them climate realists because I think they're, they're more based on climate reality. But there's always been an effort to marginalize them. But in the past few years, uh, it's gone beyond marginalization to one, never giving any climate realist a voice in any mainstream media outlet, and two, having a parade of demonization and vilification and outright lies about some of the facts regarding global warming. So for our media, it's very difficult to break through the message. Fortunately, unlike 40 years ago, there's the Internet. Uh, there are a few cable uh, news channels that will allow conservative voices uh, or climate realist voices on. Uh, so it gives us some avenue. We have to keep fighting it. We also have to keep fighting against this concerted push in our public education system to indoctrinate young children with the notion that there is a climate crisis, that it is a fact, that the notion of a climate crisis is as factual as gravity, mm -hmm. whereas one is a speculative theory about the future, and the other is something that we observe, have tested, and have ruled out anything else as far as what causes the ball to drop to the floor. So it's an uphill battle because we're facing this propaganda campaign. But I do have faith in the intelligence of the American people. I do have faith that we're able to present the facts to them. And it's hard to do to get around the media blackout, but when we do so, uh, that the American people will see the truth. And I think that's the reason why uh, the climate activists have become so frustrated that, for example, just uh, you know, just seven, eight years ago when Democrats ruled the White House, had large majorities in the Senate and the House, they could not get through climate legislation. Well, on, you know, I, I don't even know what to say about how the media has played a role. And now it's become politicized. 
So we're seeing, I don't know if you heard about Liz Warren saying that climate change is racist. So, I mean, we're moving to <laughs> anything to shut you down, anything to make you think twice about speaking up and tr controlling behavior. I mean, let's take a break because I, I, I want to discuss that because I think this has actually become somewhat of a racial weapon. And I'll tell you what I think about that. And when we come back, let's take our second break. We're listening to Medicine on Call. What's up, everybody? Bubba here. It's finally here. The long-awaited Bubba Report, bringing you news from all the trading floors across the globe. We've got Scott Lady, the cow guy, is seen on CNBC, Fox, and Bloomberg. We've got Keith Bliss, CNBC, Fox, and a floor trader at the New York Stock Exchange. We've got The Badger, who writes the hot topics in the political news. We've got myself putting together my own unique indexes that will help you give you a better idea of what's going on in the market. All you need to do to get a hold of the Bubba Report is go to thebubbashow.org and sign up for the newsletter, or you can email me direct at bubba at thebubbashow.org. We want you to have this report because we've got over 150 years of experience talking about markets, getting ready for the trading, and puts you in the best position to have successful. So email me at bubba at thebubbashow.org to get a copy of your report or go right to the website, thebubbashow.org. Make sure you get it. It's a must-have for every investor and trader. The Bubba Report. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're having a really uh, important conversation with Mr. James Taylor, um, the Director of, for Climate and Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute. And before the break, it just occurred to me, well, it didn't just occur to me, but it really just hammers home how we are being manipulated, how we're being divided so they can conquer, from my, in my opinion. And this race baiting that's going on now with climate change just seems to be completely... It's not really, it's the opposite. I, I read an article on your website, and people need to go to heartland.org. There's an article about the United Nations and misleading about food production and climate change. So people in developing countries, I guess, are supposed to be living in the dark and not taking showers and using primitive tools because of climate change. And I mean, you're not allowed to advance because of that. I mean, that doesn't sound right to me. Right, and uh, as far as the topic of food production and climate change goes, I'm glad you brought that up because this has been a theme that the media has been pushing uh, more frequently uh, during the past year or so, and that is the assertion that global warming is destroying food production and causing a food crisis. And fortunately, because we have the Internet at our fingertips, which we didn't have 40 years ago, uh, we can look up such information for ourselves. And the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization produces statistics. They list them for the world as a whole, as well as individual nations and regions as far as crop production. And what's amazing, when you look at the actual objective statistics on food production, the world as a whole sees 
record crop production almost every year. We get a record set in 2014, and then it's broken with even more crops in 2015, and then even more in 2016, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the world as a whole. It's almost every nation in the world. It's to the point where recently I've seen many articles in the New York Times, BBC, Nature, and elsewhere claiming, for example, that the reason we have so many people from Honduras and Guatemala at our southern border is because climate change has caused a drought that destroys crop production and farmers have no choice because their crops won't grow anymore. But if you go and look at the actual crop data for Honduras and Guatemala and the whole region, what you see is that crops, crop production improves every year and it breaks records every year. It's a convenient illustration that the media hopes and counts on that the American people won't actually look up the facts mm -hmm. and see that it's a lie. And uh, this is what we have to fight against every day. We have to get the truth to the American people. And I hope the American people understand that if the media and the climate alarmists are lying about such things as crop production in Honduras and Guatemala, what else are they lying about? Fortunately, much of what they say we can fact check and we can prove that it's false. They're lying about essentially everything regarding this topic. We just need to get that information to the American people. We're causing some warming, that's true, but these crises that they allege, are just a, it's a figment of the imagination. Wow. I mean, that's shocking. So we're seeing, I mean, it's always playing on the same thing, the the goodness and decency of, of the American people. Now, no one wants to see anybody starve. Nobody wants to see a child hurt. Nobody wants to see that. And that's what that narrative is. It's like a, a movie that they're playing but on the flip side, it's about power, isn't it? It's about money. It's follow the money. And if you have ways to control production or access or something that maybe even big business or big agra, whomever, someone's making money off of this. It's not just out of the goodness of someone's heart, is it? Right. And also people are paying real consequences. So, for example, regarding Honduras and Guatemala, I mean, people there are suffering. There's a reason why they're coming here. But the reason is not failing crops. Crops are setting records. The reasons have to do with crime. They have to do with corruption. They mm -hmm. have to deal with many factors. And if we ignore the real factors and try to devote all our resources and attention to non-existent factors, then we're not helping people that need help in their own countries as well as perhaps here. Uh, and it's not just that issue. Every time that we spend money, and, and the, the money globally uh, is, is in the trillions that we have spent on this asserted global warming crisis, think of all the clean water that can be provided to mm -hmm. people throughout the world with that money. Think of all the health care. Think of all the education. Think of all the housing, nutrition. Think of all the many things that benefit human health and welfare, that extend lives and make lives happier, healthier, and more productive. But money is getting taken away from those and instead being diverted to trying to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And number one, here in the United States, we're already doing so. And number two, we're not facing a climate crisis regardless of the global increase in emissions. It's not like we're sitting here like Mr. Burns on The Simpsons looking to hoard a pile of gold and not spend anything on, on reducing uh, carbon dioxide emissions. But it's that when you have opportunities to invest wealth in making people's lives better, or allowing people to keep that wealth themselves to make their own decisions to make their lives better. If instead you're going to sap money out of people's budgets, out of their household budgets and out of the economy, to fighting a fictitious crisis, this has real negative consequences on the quality and enjoyability of people's lives. Well, I think you're absolutely right. So let's take that to some of the uh, policies that were talked about. 
you know, paying, you'd have to pay per mile that you drive. And that was supposed to, isn't that some one of those schemes that you're supposed to spend money or give money to this whatever entity is because you're, you're, you're driving your car or having taxes put on your movement. You know, it's all about not, not being mobile anymore, it sounds like. I mean, where's this money going? Who's making the money? Is it the UN? Is, and what is cap and trade exactly? I know business is supposed to have credits, and, but there was somebody holding this money, right? It wasn't just virtual. Who's getting it? Right. So, and, and, and first of all, there are many folks, uh, when I've had discussions, panel discussions, back in the days when people from the alarmist camp would show up for debates, uh, they would often say we need $5, $8, $10, $20 per gallon gasoline. Mm-hmm. Now that, if that imposes real negative consequences on people's household budgets. The same thing for electricity prices. They wanted to see electricity prices double, triple, quadruple. And the reason being, they said, well, then people will, uh, will burn fewer fossil fuels. But that money has to come out of somewhere. It's not just people have this endless pit of money to pay higher prices. It means they spend less money on nutrition, housing, etc. Of late, uh, the scheme is uh, to try to appeal uh, to, to conservatives. They say, well, okay, we'll have a carbon dioxide tax, but then we'll, we'll make it revenue neutral. We'll refund the money to the American people. And <laughs> this is another, it's another clever head fake because here's the point. They want to raise taxes on conventional energy so that conventional energy is more expensive than wind and solar. In fact, if, if, you raise, if you don't raise them so that conventional energy is more expensive than wind and solar, it doesn't do anything for carbon dioxide emissions. Mm-hmm. So the point is, let's say that you make uh, coal power, natural gas power triple in price, which will put it at about the same price as wind and solar. Let's say you quadruple it so it's more expensive. Well, you have to quadruple it to make it more expensive. But what happens? Government doesn't collect any tax revenue. People are now purchasing wind and solar power at three times what they currently pay for their energy, and those wind and solar power companies keep the money. So money is not getting sent back to the American consumer. You tax things high enough so people have to buy more expensive goods and services, and no money goes to government. So it may be government revenue neutral, but 90% of what people will pay in higher prices go to wind and solar power companies, 10% goes to government, and government, after creating all sorts of new bureaucracies, administrations, and all that, they say they'll return that 10%. They're probably going to return about 2% of what you have to pay in higher prices. 98% comes right out of your wallet. That sounds like a ridiculous. It sounds like a, you know, a transfer of wealth, but in a very... Uh, insidious way while they make you feel bad about questioning it because you're a bad person. <laughs> I can't even believe, I mean, that right. doesn't even make sense. When you put it that way, right. and, nobody would be for that. And, but you would be surprised how many people, including people who are economic conservatives, when they hear the notion if you make it revenue neutral and return it all to the American people, they think that's actually going to happen. But you, if you don't give it much thought, okay, then sure, then it's revenue neutral. But again, the point is, most of the higher expenses coming out of American households' budgets are not going to go to paying that tax. If they make the tax effective in reducing carbon dioxide emissions, most of that extra money is going to win in solar power companies. That money doesn't come back to you. It is very insidious. It, it, it's very deceptive, and it's a deliberate head fake to make people think that they're going to have the same amount of money, and yet we're all going to use wind and solar power and have no carbon dioxide emissions, and it'll cost nothing. But, of course, wind and solar power, because the wind may blow for free and the sun may shine for free, 
but the energy is not very concentrated. It's very diffuse. Mm -hmm. Unlike if you take a piece of coal or you take some oil or natural gas, the energy is very concentrated. So to derive a significant amount of energy from sunlight or uh, breezes where, where you don't have much concentrated energy requires a great deal of expensive equipment that costs a lot of money to build, to construct, to put in place, and it doesn't have a very long shelf life either. So to get that energy out of these three sources costs more than it does to get very concentrated energy out of very inexpensive coal, natural gas, and oil. And then you, you tack on what you just said a minute ago about how expensive it's going to be. What's the point? And the people who you're trying to help will be hurt the most, which are the vulnerable parts of our society, the seniors, the people who are working poor. You know, who's this going to benefit, honestly? Right. And, and another important point is their wind and solar power dream is very destructive to the environment. Uh, back a few years ago when wind power powered only 1% of American electricity, a peer-reviewed study uh, in one of the most prestigious scientific journals in the world found that wind turbines, while producing just 1%, killed 1.5 million birds and bats, mm -hmm. including many threatened and endangered species, in our country each and every year. If you ramp that up to 100 uh, percent, now you're talking over 100 million birds and bats killed each and every year. It also requires 300 square miles of wind turbines to replace a single conventional uh, power plant. So if you believe in open spaces, if you're a conservationist, what you're going to have is the development of vast swaths of pristine American land instead turned into these uh, you know, power providers for wind and solar power. And this is especially troubling considering that the two uh, geographical features most conducive to wind power production are coastal shorelines and mountaintop ridges, which are among the most beautiful, pristine, and deserving of preservation uh, types of viewscapes uh, anywhere that you can find. And finally, wind turbines and solar panels require a significant amount of rare earth minerals. Rare earth minerals, there's a reason why there's no rare earth mineral mining here in the United States. It is about the most environmentally destructive practice imaginable. Mm -hmm. The rare earth minerals, it's not that they're very rare, it's that they're not concentrated. You, don't, you, you can't get them in a vein like you can iron ore or in a, in a coal pit. So what you do is you have to excavate and mine a tremendous amount of land to get a small amount of these rare earth minerals, and they're highly toxic. So you've had the environmental activist groups who have protested rare earth mining in China and other third world nations. And what it means is that you, you're imposing this environmental destruction wherever rare earth mineral is going to take place. And it's going to take place more and more frequently if you have more wind and solar power. And on top of that, uh, what you have to keep in mind is that if we are going to be outsourcing this environmental destruction to China, India, etc., it also means we're going to be beholding to China and other potentially hostile nations mm -hmm. for the, uh, the mechanisms of our energy production here in this country. They can always threaten to withhold rare earth minerals and then forestall any new wind and solar turbines, and then our economy is trapped. Well, that would be a national security issue, wouldn't it? I Absolutely. Mean, I mean, wow, Absolutely. we need to think about that. Let's take our last break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Prior to the break, I think you know, it's an eye-opening uh, conversation we were having about our national security, our safety, our uh, independence. I mean, imagine 
I mean, you wonder if this is some sort of scheme in order to, you know, push the United States towards becoming, you know, I wouldn't say a satellite, but definitely being at the mercy of another country, which no country should have happened to them. I mean, it's just shocking. But the way they're using the argument, we talked, you know, at the beginning of the show about, you know, you use the heartstrings, you use somebody's, um, you know, good heart. Now they're using violence. So you're seeing now from a social standpoint, people being attacked. You have these groups, these environmental groups that have become, they've become kind of violent and nobody really wants to engage with them because they might get hurt. Is that a second front that seems to be opening up to try to, you know, change hearts and minds? Absolutely. When people can't prevail uh, in policy discussions or other discussions based on facts and logic, then oftentimes they resort to, it can be censorship, it can be uh, intimidation. And um, and I get that quite a bit. Other uh, of my skeptical colleagues uh, get the same. Uh, it's amazing the number of uh, nasty emails. I received two of them this morning that were quite offensive. Mm-hmm. Some of them even threatened violence. But um, you know, ultimately, you just have to put that aside and trust that the American people uh, will uh, will respond to uh, to logic and truth and facts. And um, for example, you mentioned the uh, national security issue, which we talked about just a short while ago. Uh, earlier this year, I wrote a policy brief for the Heartland Institute uh, titled "Global Warming Energy Restrictions Threaten U.S. National Security." And that policy brief. Uh, mentions and, and, and makes the case for its economic uh, prosperity, its economic resources that allow a nation to field and sustain a large military. When you impose carbon dioxide restrictions on the United States, when you make our economy you know, run on much more expensive energy than would otherwise be the case, that leaves fewer resources available for our military to defend our nation. And there are many other factors as well that show that it's climate activists uh, that are once threatening national security, not climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and another component is, as you mentioned, as we talked about, if we're going to be dependent upon China and other potentially hostile nations for the components of wind turbines and solar panels, that puts us at a disadvantage. On the other hand, the United States has more coal, oil, and natural gas than any other nation in the world. In fact, there's only one other nation that has even half as much as we do. This is something we should be, one, following our own economy with, and thankfully during the past few years we've been doing so, so that now we're producing as much as we use. Mm -hmm. But two, we should be leveraging this with other nations and also using this so that nations, especially in Eastern Europe, like Poland, like Ukraine, etc., won't be held hostage by Russia and other potentially hostile nations because they know that they're dependent upon Russia for these energy sources. If we are producing, utilizing, and exporting uh, because we have so much of it, this is something that allows us to increase our national security and our geopolitical leverage. However, if we stick our heads in the sand and say it's going to be wind and solar only, uh, we're hurting our own ability to field uh, a military, and we're also limiting our ability to come to the support of other nations around the world who can use our help. I think that the bigger picture, when you look at it like that, it it really does put a lot of things into perspective. It's very myopic, you know, the, these movements, these uh, environmental groups. You know, it seems like veganism seems to be the next one down the pipe. You know, eating meat is bad. I mean, I don't 
have a problem if someone wants to be a vegan, but I do have a problem with them trying to super, you know, impose their ideology on everybody else, everybody else. And, you know, that's, it's a, not so much of a segue because I think, as I said, and I'll, I'll repeat it, this is about control, about any means necessary. You tried nice, you tried making someone feel bad, now it's violence. And, I mean, if the government changes, it could be a lot of in your pocketbook, too. I mean, you're going to be taxed to the nines. And it's about changing your behavior, whether you like it or not. I mean, what can you, what do you think is a, uh, a, a policy that the government can adopt now? And actually, let me stop for a second. Let's talk about the, the coal plants, because I understand they've been demonized. But the new technology, they're not really spewing out CO2 the way they were. Is that true? Right. And we talked earlier about how China continues to increase its emissions and is building uh, more and more coal plants, dozens per year. Mm -hmm. uh, but their coal plants don't utilize the same technologies as we do. Our right. environmental restrictions are quite severe, and not just for carbon dioxide. I mean, really, uh, it's for pollutants across the board that you see the greatest impact, where there's a reason why the air in the United States is cleanest among any comparable nation in terms of number of people, density of people, and economic activity. There's no other nation in the world that's that's cleaner than ours. And on the other hand, you have nations like China in particular, uh, where it's unhealthy to even breathe the air there. Um, so here in the United States, uh, with our market economy, without subjecting ourselves to the whims of the United Nations and international governance that is controlled by a majority of nations that don't hold our, our, our values. We don't need to subject ourselves to that to have a low emissions economy if we really believe that's important. I don't believe it's important, but regardless, we have a low emissions economy already, and there's really little need to go further down that path. Coal power has become, well, let's talk about emissions as a whole in the United States when we talk about pollutants. Mm -hmm. Each and every year we have more people in the country, we have more cars on the road, we have more economic activity, and yet right now our emissions are 70% lower than they were in 1980. Our emissions get lower virtually every year. So our air is getting cleaner, not dirtier. And it's funny because poll after poll, each year they poll the American people, do you think the air is getting cleaner or dirtier? And every year more and more people think it's getting dirtier. Right. In reality, our air is getting cleaner every year. Then, you know, that's, again, the, the megaphone of the media. He's saying the same false narrative over and over again, like it's true, and people start to believe that. I mean, I don't subscribe to anybody telling me what to do. I need to find out my own, do my own research. And I really, my listeners are, are pretty savvy. And I think that if you have a friend who thinks that the climate issue is, a, is an issue, you need to educate them. There's nothing wrong with having a conversation and citing a source and sending somebody to a website. I mean, everything I learned, I've actually learned by going online and, and doing research. And it's a whole new world when you stop having people tell you what to think and what to do, don't you think? Absolutely. And, and you'd begun to ask a question, which I believe is going to be, you know, what policies yeah. uh, should we be acting? And it's funny because what, what, the, what the big government left wants to trap us in is the notion that we must have a big government policy for everything. We don't have a big government policy for sneakers. You don't have a big government policy for basketballs. You don't have a big government policy uh, for many of the things uh, that are important in our lives. And yet, lo and behold, 
the American people uh, using their own desire to create jobs, create businesses, free market economy, economic freedom works. And in this case, with economic freedom, without these big government programs, we see, for example, through natural gas, we see electricity prices declining because through American ingenuity, we can produce more natural gas at lower prices. And also natural gas is a low emission source. It's only about half the carbon dioxide of coal. I mean, even though coal is not not the villain they make it out to be, American uh, natural gas is quite affordable and environmentally friendly. So what we see is that electricity prices are declining and American emissions are declining. The biggest thing that we really need to do is make sure that the environmental activists don't strangle things. They have a knee-jerk reaction against anything that's fossil fuels. So there are efforts to ban fracking. There are even efforts to ban natural gas. In Berkeley, for example, uh, they just passed a ban that any new homes cannot have natural gas appliances. Well, that's ridiculous. What we need to do, right, and what we need to do is not so much have big government programs, but we need to make sure there are not big government programs that stifle and restrict economic freedom, which is succeeding here in the United States. You know, it's it's all about freedom. You know, freedom of choice, freedom of association, freedom of ideas. I think if people are able, we all want the same thing, which is to live, you know, a healthy, safe, long life. And I think that what, you know, brings us together more than what divides us. And maybe the people who really do think like we do should stop being silent. Because I think the people who are the loudest are the ones, they make it seem like they're the majority. I don't believe that they are. But if we don't speak up, then you end up getting policies like these that will shut everybody down and price everybody. Who can afford to buy a house without having cheap energy to run your appliances to actually heat your home? Or you know, I, I can't even imagine what that's like. What do they expect people to do? Right. Energy is the lifeblood of our, our economy. It factors in the cost of every good and service sold and traded here in the, here in the United States and around the world. It's a key component. And as far as people getting involved, uh, if people have a have a job that keeps them busy, if they have uh, a, a life that is <laughs> you know, something that's enjoyable, if they're if they're taking care of a home and a family, uh, they're not inclined to be out marching in the streets. And the people that tend to be making a lot of this noise are people who are dissatisfied with with economic freedom, people who aren't succeeding based on their own merits and want to blame other people. Mm-hmm. It's also the people who would like to subvert. Uh, our entire system of not just economic freedom, but political freedom. Uh, those are always going to be the squeakiest wheels. Those are advocating uh, for socialism. Those are advocating for, for example, in the Green New Deal proposed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It calls for the government takeover of the American energy industry, but also a government takeover of virtually the entire economy. These are the people that want to see change. They're the ones that are going to be the loudest. The ones who realize that we have a pretty good system here mm-hmm. where living in America is, is something that is, uh, you know, we, we have the best country in the world. We have a great economy. They're not the ones marching in the street because, well, things are working out for them, and that's most of Americans. But it just takes a small, small minority of activists to give a different impression. That's true, with the help of the media, unfortunately. And the, in the last um, half a minute that we have, can you tell us, people, how they can reach you and, and read you, what you write and um, actually learn more about the Heartland uh, Institute? Right. Please go to heartland.org. That's our website. 
Uh, I can be reached at jtaylor at heartland.org. Uh, we present not only our own information, not only the studies that I write and the articles I write, but we like to present the best information from all sources. We want to give everybody uh, who's done good work and give them give them the opportunity to present their material to the American people. So heartland.org. I want to thank you so much for coming on. It was a great conversation. I learned a lot, and I look forward to having you on again in the future. Okay, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.